you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27, we're going to be looking at the resurrection account from the Gospel of Matthew, so we're going to take the last part of Matthew 27 and then all of Matthew 28, that's on page 835 of the ESV Pew Bibles, and while you're turning in there in your Bibles to that passage, I wanted to again give you an invitation to the new members class. If you're looking for a church that is committed to an inspired inerrant view of scripture, if you're looking for a church that has a children's and youth program that are committed to assisting parents and training their children up in the ways of the Lord, if you're looking for a church that is also committed to consecutive expository preaching, then you're in the right place. And I would encourage you to explore that that new members class. There's a sign-up sheet at the Connect counter. So this is going to be Matthew 27, starting at verse 62, and then going through Matthew 28, but uh, before we go to God's Word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your Word this morning, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We ask you would help us understand this passage. Father, we want to see and understand the true meaning to its original readers. And then we also want to see how it applies to us today. Uh, We want to see your account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And of course, we want to see Christ. We want to see the good news of the gospel. So Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many animals at the zoo. There are many dangerous animals at the zoo. Some are apex predators that have known to uh, kill and and eat people. It's it's happened. Uh, But when they're captured and contained, all of a sudden we have no problem walking right up to them. Sometimes in these animal containment areas they have the open kind of pit area, but then if you walk down a set of stairs, there's another area down below that's a little darker, and that has some kind of reinforced glass or or plastic or whatever the material is that you can see and view the animals. And, And all of a sudden, because they're captured and contained... We have no problem saying, problem saying, uh, honey, why don't you go stand next to the, the 800-pound silverback gorilla over there, and I'll, I'll take your picture. And so we walk over, and we turn our back on it, maybe even make a little face at it, and we, we stand there. Or we allow our toddler to, to walk up and, and put their hand on the glass, and there's a, a snarling Bengal tiger inches away on the other side. No problem at all. Now, we wouldn't even begin to to be okay with any of those things if these animals were in the wild. Uh, Rightly so. We would never turn our back on them or allow our children to get close to them. But because they've been captured and contained, suddenly it's okay. On the cross, Jesus was mocked and reviled. In fact, when we looked at the uh, Good Friday account of, of Jesus Uh, A few days ago, we saw that they were openly expressing their scorn and contempt to Jesus. Why didn't they do that earlier? Uh, Part of the reason is because of the crowds. We know scripture tells us that the the Jewish leadership was afraid of the crowds because the crowds, by and large, were marveling at what Jesus said. and He was very popular with the crowds, so the, the Jewish leaders were afraid of the crowds. That's one reason. But another part is because 
they, they were afraid to engage him. They learned very early on that uh, when, when encountering Jesus in any kind of confrontational uh, situation, he, he would crush his enemies. He, he would just uh, dominate the, the encounter. Uh, it didn't matter if they were trying to trick him or, or trying to trap him or, or, or trying to, to show that, that he was wrong on something. Jesus would respond and would silence everyone. Uh, almost instantly. He would ask them a question that they couldn't answer. Or he, would, he would quote a scripture passage and ask them, what does that mean? And they would be dumbfounded. They, they all of a sudden couldn't come up with the answer. And it got to the point where they would just stop engaging, engaging him. Matthew twenty two forty six says, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. And Mark 12, same thing. It says, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So they were afraid of Jesus when he was in the wild, so to speak. When he was roaming around in his natural habitat of Galilee and Jerusalem, nobody wanted to come near him. But that changed when they captured Jesus and they nailed him to a cross. All of a sudden, it's like the animal that, that's been captured in the zoo. All, all of a sudden now, we're going to let our scorn fly and, and flow freely. They, they cut loose. They, they, had, they let them have it. We recorded, or the scripture records some of the things they said to him, but you know, it doesn't record everything. They just railed at him. What, what's that Jesus up on the cross? No, nobody come back? No, no more, world, no more uh, nuggets of wisdom to throw at us? What was, give us one of your classics, Jesus. So what was that? You said that one time. Uh, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and, the, and to God the things that are God. Lay, lay something like that on us. Nothing? Yeah, that's what I thought. They had finally captured him. And after his body was taken down from the cross, buried in a tomb, they thought they had permanently contained him. So they had captured Jesus, and now they wanted to contain him. Now our passage this morning picks up the day after Jesus' crucifixion. And as we find the, the, the Jewish leadership, we find them attempting to contain Jesus. And specifically, they're doing two things. They're trying to contain his body in the tomb, and they're also trying to contain his authority, as expressed and manifest in his teaching, his influence, his followers. And if you remember again, back from Palm Sunday, if you were here last Sunday, you remember this was one of the this was the issue that was frustrating the Pharisees. Remember it said, and many of the people, many of the people in the crowds were going away and believing in Jesus. And we talked about how that phrase going away means a transfer of leadership. This is what they were worried about. They they wanted to shut down Jesus' authority. They didn't like it that people were going from under their authority to under Jesus' authority. So as we read through this this morning, keep an ear out for that, the containment. They're trying to contain Jesus' body, and they're trying to contain his authority in this passage. What they didn't know is that they didn't really capture Jesus, did they? He went willingly. They hadn't really pulled anything off there. He, he willingly went to the cross. And what they were going to find out shortly is that they could never contain Jesus. 
because Jesus is uncontainable. He can't be contained by people, he can't be contained by the tomb, and he can't be contained by death. So let's read our passage, Matthew 27, starting at verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." The first attempt to, to contain, starting at verse 62, it says the next day, so the day after Jesus was crucified, in other words, Saturday, on Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees, and sometimes we group them together and call them the Jewish leadership, gathered before Pilate with a request. Now, somehow they had gotten wind of what Jesus had instructed his disciples privately beforehand. On a couple of different occasions, Jesus has told his disciples what was going to happen when he went to Jerusalem. And Matthew 17 is one of those times. It says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. So for the disciples, none of this should have been a surprise. He told them plainly ahead of time. Somehow the Jewish leadership got wind of this, so they went to Pilate, and they wanted him to give an order to secure the tomb. Why? Because they were trying to contain his body. 
Now, they didn't think that Jesus was actually going to raise, rise from the dead. That, that wasn't on their radar. But they wanted to prevent his disciples to come and steal his body and then proclaim to everyone that Jesus had risen from the dead. So they wanted to contain his body. And Pilate answered them, it says, uh, you have a guard, but you've got a footnote, at least the ESV has a footnote, it says, or take a guard. And I think it's worth clarifying here because sometimes it's preached the other way. Uh, if it's you have a guard, then Pilate is saying, you have your own people. Use them. So the, the Jewish authorities had a temple guard. This was kind of like a private security detail in the Jewish temple, and that's what he was referring to. If it, he was saying, take a guard, Pilate is saying, okay, yes, I, I'm agreeing with your request. I will allocate some of my soldiers to go and, and answer your request and make the, the tomb secure. But I think the, the most likely alternative here is the ESV translation. I think they've got it right. You have a guard for a couple of different reasons. Remember, Pilate didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus uh, from even before the crucifixion. He, he was going around saying, you know what, I'm not comfortable with this. He was just uneasy about the whole thing. Remember, his wife came up to him, and, or his wife sent word and said, don't have anything to do with this righteous man for I've suffered much because of a dream. Remember that? And then Pilate himself, it, towards the end of the uh, of, uh, his time with Jesus, washed his hands publicly, and that was his way of saying, I'm, I'm out. I really don't want to have anything to do with this. Uh, Matthew 27 says, and these are the words of Pilate, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Y you take care of it. I, I don't want to be responsible for this. He was trying to get away from it. So he seems to be taking that same kind of hands-off approach here. He's like, you have a guard. You, you take care of it. That, that word go in our verse could also be translated as off you go or uh, go away. So that, that's a dismissal comment. He, he's saying, yeah, you just deal with it. I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And then finally, in Matthew 20 and 11, we're going to read that the guards... They had been there, went back and reported to the chief priest. Now, if they had been Pilate's guards, they would have reported to him. So, I think the ESV is correct. You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you can. And they did. So, what I want us to see in this first section is that the Jewish leadership was trying to contain the physical body of Jesus inside the tomb. They didn't want the body to get out. 28.1 this is a new section, uncontainable. New scene, new setting, new day. This is after the Sabbath, towards dawn of the first day of the week. So, Sunday morning. Two women, Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, remember, she was the Mary that Jesus had exercised seven demons out of. And ever since her healing, she had been following Jesus. She followed Jesus around in his ministry. She followed him to the cross, and now she's following him to the tomb. And then the other Mary is identified by that phrase, the other Mary... Uh, but in the Gospel of Mark, in his resurrection account, she's identified as Mary, the mother of Joseph. Mark 15, 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So the other Mary seems to be uh, the mother of another one of Jesus' disciples. Both named Mary, these two women go to the tomb. And when they arrive, uh, we've got several things. An earthquake, an angel of the Lord descended, the angel of the Lord rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His, his clothing was white as snow. 
So with all this going on, there's really no mistaking this angel for a person. This is definitely a supernatural being. Supernatural behavior, supernatural strength, supernatural appearance. It's an angel, not a person. And the guards are filled with fear, trembled and became like dead men. We can't miss the irony here. They, they became like dead men. They were supposed to be guarding and containing the dead man. Well, they became like dead men. Of course, Jesus was alive. Jesus, they were trying to contain, uh, and, and he's uncontained. Now the guards are easily contained. They're, they're simply struck with fear, and then they're out. That's, that's it for the rest of this scene. They're frozen with fear, temporarily neutralized. Five and seven, the angel gives a message. Angel means messenger. Angels are messengers from God. So here's the message. Do not be afraid. The Marys have no reason to be afraid because they're followers of Jesus. You're looking for Jesus who is crucified. That's acknowledging his real physical death. He's not here. He has risen. As he said, remember Jesus told you ahead of time. Now it's happened. Examine the place where the body had been laid and then go and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. He will meet you in Galilee. So that's a fairly lengthy message, but the command that is to go go quickly. And then verse 8, we've got a New Testament example of command fulfillment. This happens all over in the Bible. It happens in the Old Testament. It happens in the New Testament. A command fulfillment is where you see God or a messenger of God or a prophet of God issuing a command and then the person receiving the command follows it immediately. This is to teach us that when God issues commands to us, we are to follow them immediately and completely. So verse 8, the command was go quickly and tell his disciples. And then it says, so they departed quickly from the tomb and ran to tell his disciples. So they, they were following the command obediently and accurately. And as they're running, verse 9 says, Jesus shows up and says, greetings, which could be translated for us today in our vernacular like hi or hello. It's a very common greeting. Very informal. So Jesus greets them as if, as if nothing really has happened. He just kind of picks up right where they left off. But they in turn worship him. That, that's their response. They bow down and worship. And then in verse 10, he repeats the same message that was delivered by the angel, except one difference. The angel calls his disciples his disciples, but Jesus says, my brothers. So there's a little bit of a change there. And for now, I just want you to tuck that away. Okay, just that phrase, the, the, the reason that, or the, the fact that Jesus called his disciples my brothers. Just, just hold on to that for now. So in this second section, I want us to see that Jesus' physical body could not be contained. So that the first section was the Jewish leaders attempting to contain his physical body. The second section was showing us it was uncontainable. Their, their attempt to contain him failed. It didn't work. They set a guard on it. They sealed it. They put a large stone in front of that. None of that worked. He was uncontainable. His body came out of the tomb. Now this has implications for everyone who has faith in Christ. Jesus has undone what Adam did. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has, also, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, 
so in Christ shall all be made alive. And you can see that Adam-Jesus comparison language in those verses. In Adam results in death. In Christ results in life. So Jesus has reversed the curse of sin. Jesus is the way out from being in Adam and being in death. There's only one exit, and it's Jesus. That's the way out. Without faith in Jesus, we remain in Adam, and we must pay the penalty for our own sin. Romans 6, 9 and 10 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin, for the death he died, he died to sin, once and for all. So Jesus' resurrection was the ultimate validating stamp of victory over sin and death. And it is not only for him, but it is also for all those who are united to Jesus by faith. Jesus rose and achieved victory over sin and death, as does everyone who is united by faith to him. That, That victory over sin and death applies to Jesus and his followers that are united to him by faith. It, it's kind of like if going in a car. Someone's driving in a car and you're in the passenger seat and they drive somewhere, you're going with them. You, you're, you're united with them. It's just that simple. You're, you're going with them. There's no possibility of you going somewhere else. You're with them. It's the same with Jesus. Romans 6, 4, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of our Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The fact that Jesus' body could not be contained in the tomb or by death means everything because it's that validating stamp of victory over sin and death. And without it, we have nothing. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 acknowledges that. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If Jesus' body was still contained in the tomb, then that's definitely not a validating stamp of victory. That, that, That would be a stamp of defeat. If he was still in the tomb, none of these things applies. Apply. And if it doesn't really matter if we're united to him by faith because he's still in the tomb. That means he's a liar. He said, I'm going to rise on the third day. Well, if he's still in the tomb, that means it didn't happen. But in fact, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus' body was uncontainable. Well, let's look at the second attempt to contain. This starts at verse 11. After the Marys took off to immediately tell the disciples, some of the guard that had been posted there came to their senses. They were able to make their way back to the the Jewish leadership and report what happened. And then verse 12 tells us that they gathered together, they gathered all the, the rest of the leaders together. They took counsel, which means they decided what they were going to do. And the answer was containment. Containment. We were unable to contain his body in the tomb, but we can contain the story now that he's not there anymore. Let's see if we can put a lid on this. We can control and contain what people hear, and in that way, we can still contain his authority. We can make sure that his teaching doesn't spread and that his disciples don't multiply. So here's the plan. They, They speak to the guards. Um, we want you to give a falsified account of what happened. Uh, you, you want us to spell it out for you? Okay, we want you to lie. We want, we want you to tell people that, that somebody came by night, his followers, and they took him while you were asleep. And the guards, you know, 
uh, may have pushed back a little bit. Uh, doesn't, isn't that going to make us look like we don't know how to do our jobs? Uh, don't worry about it. Here's some money. Here's a little bit more money. And uh, don't worry about the governor. We'll take care of him. We good? And apparently they were good because 15 tells us they took the money and they did as they were directed. So the takeaway from the second attempt to contain uh, Jesus is that they attempted to contain his authority. They didn't want an increase in his followers and his teaching and his, his, uh, the, the, the crowds giving their allegiance to him. They were attempting to contain, attempting to contain Jesus' authority. And then finally, the last section at 16, once again, uncontainable. The disciples went as they were commanded to the place where Jesus had told them to go. Now, it's not clear if uh, this is just the 11 or if it's a little bit more than the 11. The 11 disciples minus Judas, for sure, but it may be also several more disciples. Um, verse 17 says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Worship, good. Uh, doubted? Doubted means to, to hesitate or to waver, and there's... There have been multiple attempts to try to explain this away, but here it is. Uh, we have to accept this for what it is. Now remember, my understanding is that it's probably more than just 11. Jesus appeared several times. There were 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. And he made several appearances to his disciples during those times. This is not the same day as the resurrection. And this is also not the same day of his ascension. That took place on the Mount of Olives, right outside of, of Jerusalem. So this is another one of his appearances to, to some unknown number of his disciples. And what it tells us is that some of them that were there, maybe some of them that had not actually seen the wounds and, and touched his hands and sides, maybe some of those people were just trying to process what they were seeing. And then we have the Great Commission, which is the mission of the church. The Great Commission, we, we often... Uh, chop this off or, or, or cordon off this section and we, we could spend and we have spent whole messages talking about the Great Commission but this morning I think it's important for us to see it within the immediate context of the resurrection. That's where it's placed here. The Great Commission is what Jesus, the head of his church, wants his church to do. This is the church's mission statement. Go and make disciples. And he begins by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So no longer is Jesus the itinerant preacher who roamed around Galilee and Jerusalem, but whose ministry ended with him being captured by, by Jewish authorities and led to the cross for an execution. Now we see Jesus in his exalted status. Post-resurrection, he rules and reigns over his kingdom with all authority unlimited dominion and power, and his kingdom is both everlasting and indestructible. And he sends his church out with his authority, go and make disciples of all nations. And we understand that that doesn't mean geopolitical nations. Like He's not saying go and make disciples of France and Germany and the United States and Canada. He's saying people groups. People groups. Ethno-linguistic people groups. Make sure you reach everybody with this good news. Baptizing and teaching. Baptizing is a one-time event where people are received into and assimilated into the, the visible covenant community, his body, the church. And then teaching is an ongoing event that happens over a lifetime. It never stops. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. This is his promised presence. 
the Spirit of Christ will be with the Church of Christ until Christ returns for His Church. That's how He set it up. He is with us always. He is uncontainable. The Jewish leaders did everything they could to contain his authority. They, they were spreading lies among the people in, in hopes that the truth of his resurrection would be disbelieved. They, they were hoping that Jesus' authority would just kind of come to a quiet end. They, they were hoping his teaching would be forgotten. They, they were hoping that uh, his followers would just kind of dwindle and, and then, you know, die off. They were hoping that there, there would be no such thing as a second-generation Christ follower. They wanted to contain Jesus' authority, but after the resurrection, Jesus declared, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. His authority did not diminish. It was magnified. They wanted to contain Jesus' followers, but after the resurrection, he commanded, go and make disciples of all nations. His disciples did not die off. They took off. Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, millions. They wanted to contain his teaching. After the resurrection, Jesus commanded, teach my disciples to observe all that I have commanded you. And there has been an unending stream of the teaching of Jesus from that day until today in the church, on any given day, any reached people group, there is biblical teaching occurring. Today, on Resurrection Sunday, 2022, there is faithful teach teaching being proclaimed in pulpits and churches all over the world. Jesus' body could not be contained. Neither could his authority or his teaching or his disciples. And I want us to see this as a unit because I, I even believe that there is an intended structure here. A one, two, one, two. We see attempted to, to contain uncontainable with his body. Attempt to contain authority uncontainable with the Great Commission. Jesus is uncontainable. What is the uncontainable message? What is the uncontainable message from this uncontainable Jesus? It is the gospel. And I want to make sure we understand what that is, and then I want to talk about one aspect of it. I want to talk about the fundamental nature of the gospel as part of the application. So first, the, to clarify the gospel. When we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're talking about the good news of salvation through faith in Christ. It's good news because all of us stand condemned. When, when we're born into this world, we're born under sin. Sin deserves punishment. And God, as a righteous judge, will judge all sin. Um, when we, we, we know this intuitively, it's written on the law of our hearts, but it also is told to us explicitly in Scripture, there is a judgment day. When, when we look around at the world, I mean, I mean come on, watch the news. What's happening right now around us? There will be judgment for everything that we see going on right now. Likewise, there will be judgment for every single person. We can either face that judge on our own and try to stand before him on our own record, which is filled with sin. Not only are we born under the sinful headship of Adam, but as we review our own lives, we have to confess and acknowledge we're not sinlessly perfect. 
we have multiple sin after multiple sin. I, I mean, each one of us, we review the tapes in our mind. I mean, there are so many things that we're ashamed of, so many things that we would never tell anyone, so many ways that we've hurt other people. That's, that's called sin. When we break God's law, it's sin. The good news is this. God sent Jesus. Jesus achieved what you and I or Moses or no one else has ever been able to do. He achieved that perfectly sinless life. From the moment of his birth to the moment of his death, he lived perfectly. When we review his life, we find nothing wrong. We find no sin. We find no breaking of God's law. And this is exactly what God demands in order to be uh, accepted by God. He demands that perfect righteousness. So the good news is God sent Jesus to achieve that record. And when we repent of our sin, when we acknowledge that we're not sinlessly perfect, we acknowledge we've sinned before God and put our trust in him. And we say, I trust in Jesus alone for my salvation, not in my own good works, but in Jesus. God credits or imputes that perfect record of righteousness to us. So now as the judge, he can say, bring the gavel down and say, I declare you righteous. Not because we're good, but because we have the righteousness, the goodness, the moral perfection of Christ. We're in the car with him. We're united to him by faith. And the cross, of course, is the payment for our sin. It, uh, a judge today can't, can't bring in a, a, a person guilty of multiple, multiple murders and, uh, and then be called a good judge when he says, um, I'm feeling good today, don't worry about it. I'm just going to let you go. Uh, neither can God. God has to punish sin. So the punishment for our sin was put on Jesus Christ. His blood was shed for you, for me, on the cross. That's, that's the good news. And it is by faith. Uh, and that brings me to the second part of, of what I wanted to talk about. The first part is that gospel clarification. It is only through Jesus Christ. We cannot ever hope to stand before the judge on our own righteousness. Fail. We will, we will not pass inspection. I guarantee you on the authority of Scripture, no one will come before God and be allowed into his kingdom on their own. We must go through the door that is Jesus Christ. But I want to talk about the fundamental nature of the gospel, and it's this. The gospel is salvation by grace, not performance. The gospel is a gospel of grace, not performance. And if somebody's hearing that message for the first time and everything that I just explained, they might say, okay, yeah, but I still, you have to, you know, you have to be good, right? I have to be good enough before I come to Christ, right? He's not going to accept this and this in my life. Or, I, haven't, I haven't done anything for him. I have to at least start coming to church first, Right? No, that's not how it works. I understand that people think that because we're trained from a very early age that you have to perform in order to get something. I mean, we, we have a preschool here and that's one of the things that, that the preschool teachers know very well. They know positive reinforcement gets behavior that you want. When, when preschoolers are, are doing something good and the preschool teachers clap and say, good job, 
And they get all excited and they smile. The, the preschooler says, oh, I like that. I, I like being told good job. And they're smiling. I think I'll do that again. You perform to get the praise. And then we get to school and it's no different. We get what? A report card that reports on our academic performance. If you want A's, you have to work for it. And I'm all for that, first of all. Please hear me. Those that get A's are those that earn the A's. I'm just making an observation. And we get, we get older athletics. I had a, a friend in college who played college athletics. He played sports and asked him how it was going. He said, oh, I, yeah. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, it's the politics. I said, the politics? He said, oh, there's politics. He said, I like playing, but I don't like the way it works. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't have any value in my coach's eyes unless I'm performing. And he said, my, the relationship could be something like this. He said, my, my coach basically says to me, what have you done for me lately? If, if your stats from the last three games aren't, aren't where they should be, well, then you, you have no value to me. Performance. And then we get into adult, adulthood, and what? We go to work and we have performance evaluations, right? If you want to advance in the company, if you want to do well, if you want to keep your job, you have to perform. So, so from the very beginning, in the rest of our lives, we're, we're, we're taught this. You have to perform in order to get the prize. You, you have to do something to get something. So when we come to God... The, the, the unspiritual mind looks at it the same way. And that's why we have a plethora of man-made religions. It's all about what you do. You have to do this. You have to make this pilgrimage. You have to pray this way. You have to do this. You have to give this. You have to do this with your body. You have to do that. Those are all things we do to be made right with God. That's religion. That's not what this is about. That's performance-based. The gospel is grace-based. You do nothing to make yourself right before God. It's all Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16 says, We have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. When, when Paul says works of the law, he means doing things, doing good things, obeying the law. So that's, that's how it works. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, dead in sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The gospel is a gospel of grace. We do not deserve it, and we cannot earn it. So when God issues this general call and says, repent and believe in the gospel. He says that to sinners like you and me, and he says, come just as you are. I will receive you. I will receive you into my kingdom just as you are. Repent and believe. One more example of grace-based. Remember when I told you to tuck away the, the phrase that Jesus said in verse 10? He said, my brothers instead of my disciples. Matthew 26, 56 tells us that when Jesus was arrested, so when they came to capture him in an effort to capture and contain Jesus, when they came to capture him, it says everybody left him. 
They, they came after Jesus. If you remember the accounts from the Gospels, they came to, to capture him with, with clubs and swords, and there was this mob, and they, they were going to get him. They were coming to get him. And his friends, his closest friends and disciples were there, and they all ran away. It was his darkest hour. It was his greatest need from his friends, and they took off. Matthew 26, 58, then all the disciples left him and fled. I don't know about you, but if I had friends and in my greatest need, when I really needed them, when I counted the most, if they left me, I don't know if I would consider them my friends anymore. I mean, this was the ultimate, are you with me or not moment, and they said, not. And they left. And then for Peter, it gets worse. He goes on to deny Jesus repeatedly, when it counts. So the disciples' performance was a failure. They failed to perform. But when Jesus delivers this message to the Marys, he doesn't call them failures. And in fact, he doesn't even call them my disciples. He doesn't. The message to Mary is, uh, oh yeah, and tell my disciples I, I'm done with them. They, I needed them the most and they weren't there. So I'm going to start new with a new set of disciples, some that know how to um, stay loyal and know what commitment means. Tell them they don't have to bother showing up anymore. He doesn't say that. If it was performance-based, he might have. Instead, he calls them my brothers. My brothers. That's grace. Jesus extends the same grace-based relationship with anyone who turns to him in repentance and belief. The gospel is a message of salvation by grace not performance. And not just to get into the kingdom. It's not just grace to get in and then once you're in, you need to keep on top of that. It's, it's grace to get in. It's grace all the way. It's grace at the end. It's continued grace. God is patient. He is kind. He is forgiving to those who have placed their faith in his son. Jesus is uncontainable, uncontrollable and unrestricted. His authority is unlimited and unconstrained, and his grace unfathomable. If you turn to the uncontainable, resurrected Jesus Christ in repentance belief, he will give you forgiveness of your sins, he will grant you eternal life, and he will welcome you into his kingdom as a brother or sister in Christ. Amen.